Hello, I'm Gracie Mae Bradley, and welcome to the Locating Legacies series, created by the Stuart Hall Foundation, produced by Pluto Press, and funded by Arts Council England. Last time, Kojo Koram and I discussed how Stuart Hall's analyses of Thatcherism can help us better understand the political and economic crises that we're currently living through. In this episode two of the Locating Legacies series, I'm delighted to be speaking with Françoise Vergès. Françoise is an activist and public educator. She grew up on the island of La Réunion and worked for many years as a journalist and editor in the women's liberation movement in France. She holds a PhD in political science from the University of California, Berkeley, and is the author of several articles and books, including A Decolonial Feminism and A Feminist Theory of Violence. She regularly works with artists, has produced exhibitions, and is the author of documentary films on Maurice Condé and Aimé Césaire. Françoise and I will explore the connections and disparities between the anti-colonial politics of the 1950s and 60s in relation to today's movements to decolonize educational, arts and heritage institutions. So I've read this week A Feminist Theory of Violence and A Decolonial Feminism, and it was really a delight for me. I was politicised not purely by reading when I was much younger. That happened because of the conditions of my life. But the first philosophical texts that I read, the first works of radical and post-colonial theory that I read were all in French because I studied philosophy in French. So Fanon, Merleau-Ponty, Césaire, Camus, Sartre, all of those people, those were my first encounters with radical philosophy and poetry. And I would sit in the basement of the Taylorian in Oxford and leaf through Présence Africaine because they kept all of that literature right in the basement in the rolling stacks. (laughs) And it was just an amazing experience for me. And, And as I've grown older, I've engaged more and more with black feminist literature and strategy, abolitionist literature. And your work just really bridged those two intellectual themes for me. Um, When I picked up your books, it really felt like a homecoming. So I'm really honoured to be talking with you today. And I wondered if maybe we could start thinking about coloniality. So you draw on philosopher Peter Ecke's work to distinguish between colonisation, which he describes as an event or a period, and colonialism, which he describes as a set of total social formations that persists into the present. And so if we think about coloniality in a very concrete way, what did growing up on La Réunion teach you about how colonial dynamics structure our present? And what has your work in feminist liberation struggles taught you about undoing those dynamics? Well, thank you very much, Gracie, and thank you for your word. Uh, well, uh, it's a very, yeah, it's a very important question because, as I say, I did not encounter theory of emancipation in the book or at school. I live it, I mean, as a child. Uh, you know, I'm not sure I understood everything. I was not a theorist at six years old. But I really understood, yes. I mean, Réunion had been a colony of slaves, you know, with slaves and then indentured workers, and it became a French department in 1946. But it remained very, very colonial. And I grew up with really still huge plantation. I mean, I grew up, you know, I'm not like that old, right? <laughs> I grew up in the 60s, 70s. With still plantation, white supremacy, incredible racism. 
a French history, French geography, French literature, I mean, everything we know about education being, you know, the education of the masters. And also because my parents were uh, anti-colonial activists and they took us, they took the children, we were four of us, to everything, you know, to all the meeting, to all the exchange they had. So it also gave us a close connection with a lot of social classes. They took us to the field to the sugarcane field. And so we thought what was agricultural workers. And I remember being very, my mother was a feminist and in a feminist organization. Also the contact with women, the question of women, very strongly. The fact that all the black and non-white women were domestic, were serving the white population. And that this was like natural. I think the question for me also was a constant denaturalization of the world. The way the world was, was not that order of the world, right? It was not the natural order. And that has been done by social forces, so it could be undone. That was a very clear lesson. The second thing that France was for me a state, a state that was, of course, with a monopoly on violence, as we know, but really a state. I had no uh, kind of a blind love for France, you know, like sometime you will have. France was for me the police, the army, uh, the people who came at home and to houses to arrested people we knew, who beat them to death, uh, who put them into prison, who exercised a lot of censorship on opposition journal, who repressed any kind of association and you know union. So for me, the understanding of what is a state was quite early, and so when I read about the state and white supremacy, I had example in my mind. The theory came after. So Réunion remained for me something I go back to, to remember also the question of repression and the question of ideology and white supremacy. Mm. Really, uh, and how white supremacy exercises itself through institution, uh, the school, the culture, the economy, you know, the social. And also, sorry, the last things also, a quite early understanding of whiteness of the left, you know, the white left, the left in Europe. Because <laughs> of my parents were communists, there was a strong internationalism and we received journals from all over the world. And this understanding that struggle was also elsewhere, not only in Europe, was also very, it was there with me, it was around me. I live into it. Thank you. And when you talk about kind of living into that struggle, I know that you worked for many years as a journalist and editor in the women's liberation movement in France. And I wonder what your work in that sphere has taught you about undoing colonial dynamics. What can we learn? Well, when I arrived in France, I was uh, my first years in France, I circulated in anti-racist movement, anti-imperialist movement, and women's group. I was not fully in the women's liberation movement. I was still very, and I'm still, in a way, very tied to the global south and the anti-imperialist struggle. And I did not find them very anti-imperialist, I, mean, I may say. But then slowly, I really became close because there was something nonetheless in the way that it was called women's liberation movement, that there was liberation and movement in that, was very important for me. What I learned there, it was still quite an indifference in the French liberation movement, even though they 
they say otherwise, with the struggle in the third world. I mean, not so much an indifference, but perhaps not a deep understanding on the way in which they participated into the exploitation and extraction as women in France, you know, that the life in France was so comfortable, even for them, even if it was difficult, even if there was class uh, differences. There was a comfort that France has reached because of the extraction Mm -hmm. and dispossession and exploitation of people for centuries. And they did not get that, really, I think. So for me, it was the encounter with Europe, the encounter with France, and I remained for a while very attached to the South, I was constantly going back to Algeria or going back to Réunion, because for me, this is where the struggle was happening. There was a certain kind of two lives, you know, the life, uh, the most important life for me was the one when I went to Algeria or to Réunion. But in France, it was activism, really deep activism in anti-imperialist and anti-racist. Um, I felt that the French did not get really the way in which their country was that country because of slavery and colonialism. It was not over there, slavery and colonialism, and they were there. They did not get mm. really how much they were tied to slavery, to colonial slavery and colonialism. In your book, A Feminist Theory of Violence, you speak about the importance of recuperating and retelling the stories of enslaved women and maroon women who resisted and subverted the violence to which they were subjected. And that call really made me think of Stella Dadzi's book, A Kick in the Belly, which tells exactly those stories of women who incited rebellions, poisoned their masters, procured abortions in the face of pro-natalist policies and women who more broadly maintained these traditions of medical care and nourishment and song that were integral to enslaved people's endurance of their conditions on the plantation. And you and your work look to the Maroons who, you say, created sovereign territories at the very heart of the system of slavery and proclaimed their freedom. And I wonder, what do you think Marinage and those Maroon dreams and utopias can offer those of us working towards liberation in the present day? Yeah, that's a very important. In which way their emancipatory utopia is useful for today? Mm. And I think it's a very important question. I do think that it's many things. Uh, it's a vegetivity, escaping, turning your back on the plantation, understanding what is a fight and that you have really enemy on the other side, These are not people with whom you can negotiate because they want your death. You know, the lives of uh, black people and others enslaved did not matter, but really did not matter. And so strongly you understand it's a refusal and it's an affirmation of life. It's an affirmation of the long road to freedom. The fact that, okay, we may not see freedom, but we will fight because freedom is possible. We have to really uh, stop that machine and we will do it as much as we can. And for me, they were the only free people. Even if what marooning for two or three days, as we call petit marronage in French, or for a longer time and settling community of freedom, for me, they were the only free person in the slave world. Because 
They say no to the system that say, you are black, therefore you are enslaved because of blackness. And they were the one who reaffirmed their humanity. And in Réunion, it's very, I mean, they renamed themselves. Many were from Madagascar. They had a name in Madagascar, of course. They had a, their Malagashi name. They arrived and they were given name as in everywhere. And when they marooned, they renamed themselves. And they, the name they gave themselves was, you know, uh, the lover of freedom, the one who never bow his head, uh, the one who loved uh, uh, the forest. So names that meant deeply an incredible affirmation of life and freedom. So they left a theory of fugitivity and freedom. It's not just an action. It's a theory. And the relation also that they have to nature, or as you say, medical plants, the way they recall, you know, they, in a land they did not know. I mean, this was not their native land. In the land, they were able to reconstitute a land, and that was the land of freedom, and also of struggle. They teach us that if you fight, you have to know on the other side it's an enemy. It's not just someone with whom you disagree. It's someone who wants your death. And that also, for me, they are teaching us that we have to overcome fear, that we have to, you know, become brave and fight back. And if it, and women, as you were saying, black women, were really, really the, the pillar of this struggle by um, the transmission not only of knowledge about plants, but mm-hmm. of love, of the possibility of love in a world in which black people were denied the capacity to love. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I really appreciate the... What is it, the phrase that you use? Making fear change sides. I think it's really powerful. So thank you for that. I suppose building on this question of marronage and kind of looking backwards, I also found it interesting, the challenge that you raised to linear and capitalist and instrumental ways of thinking about time. Um, I think abolition feminism makes a similar challenge. It demands that we remove ourselves from the tempo of the news cycle or the electoral cycle so that we can think about work that might span generations. And you also talk about how the language of different waves or generations of feminism obscures the multiplicity of women's movements and fails to account for feminist mobilizations in the global south. And I know that many of the listeners of this podcast will be in the global north. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what we miss when we fail to take an internationalist view, when we fail to centre those feminist mobilisations in the global south. Well, what's happening today, what we see emerging really in Europe, I see stronger, stronger than before, because there is a this is an ideology supported by the state, that feminism was born in Europe, right? that Europe is a land of the natural soul for equality between men and women. And of course, this is totally ideology and it's a fiction. And by saying that, Europe situates itself by, you know, giving lesson to the other women in the world and, of course, erasing the fight and how women, of course, understood freedom and equality very deeply and they understood it very well because they knew, you know, when they were oppressed. So 
moving away from that temporal, as you say, it's you know what black feminists tell us of the long way, the long way. But also for me, it is entangled temporality that are erased by capitalist linear time and the idea of progress that we will always, you know, like because the way they talk about progress in history erase the struggle. You know, oh this was bad, but now it's good. You know, and so let's move forward. And they don't see what I call this entangled temporality, the way in which the past is still, you know, we are still living with the past and we are still repairing the past, the old damage and wounds and really destruction and disposition. And we are also repairing the present as it is because white supremacy is still extremely uh, cruel and brutal. And we have to repair already the future to look at the future because it's being destroyed as we speak by racial capitalism. So this entangled temporality cannot, of course, we cannot think about the, you know, the past, the past, the present and the future in this way, because we are still living with the ancestors, with all those uh, who died without sepulture, those who were lost, whose lives were lost on the way. And we live with them and we still have to give them a sepulture. We have to still to, and we do through ritual, through remembrance, through uh, poetry, through, through, you know, songs, uh, through uh, writing about history. So we are doing this, but historical writing is not about, okay, we write about the past as a past, chapter, you know, close, chapter close. But we write as we look at it, consider it from the present and even from the future. And so it is entangled temporality that gives us a totally uh, different understanding of time which lead to a different writing, to a different form of writing uh, that is not a celebration of the past as building a form of modernity. It's really uh, more, I will say, a constant reworking about temporalities, plural, and about uh, the way they are entangled and the way imagination work and how imagination is central to abolition feminism or the decolonial feminism I'm, I'm talking about. That imagination that challenge the order of the world. And this remembrance bring back challenge constantly because that fixation is an erasure mm -hmm. at the same time. I, for me, it's also the constant reworking, you know, the writing of history, the different form of writing, the way in which imagination, not in the sense of bringing fake story, but the way in which uh, history is not just about individual, but about movement, about uh, creating internationalism, constantly uh, nourishing, nourishing the root of alliance and solidarity. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you reflect on this. This point that essentially for radical women to be remembered in the kind of Western liberal canon, they have to be sort of extracted from the movements that they were part of. They have to be remembered as individual heroines, uh, not radical women who were part of a movement and who were supported by and supporting collective movements, um, which I think is really important for us to remember, especially at a time when I think um, there are pushes from lots of different directions, economic, media and so on, for people maybe to think about themselves as individuals, to conceive of ourselves as individuals. Um, exactly. And it's really important that we that we push against that. 
And I suppose on this theme of remembrance, actually, I wanted to come to to something quite concrete because there's an incident that you discuss in a feminist theory of violence that, that happened in March 2020 in France. There were militant feminists who were protesting in Place de la République and they were treated incredibly harshly by the police. Um, I think the préfecture said that there was a hostile mood towards the police. And by contrast, the more liberal feminists who were demonstrating the following day were not policed in this way. And as I read that passage, I thought so vividly of an incident that happened in London one year later in March 2021. Um, Many of us went to hold a vigil in memory of Sarah Everard, who was, it later emerged, murdered by a serving police officer as she was walking home across Clapham Common. And that police officer used coronavirus laws as a pretext to falsely arrest her. And at the same time, those coronavirus laws were cited as a pretext for forcing us demonstrators to disperse. And earlier in the day, Kate Middleton, a member of the royal family, had been photographed on the common, laying flowers. But those of us who were there in the evening at a demonstration called by Sisters Uncut, we were intimidated by the police. People were violently arrested. People were forced to disperse. And that violence was instigated by the police. And they spoke afterwards quite openly in front of the local parliamentary representative of the fact that it was left-wing chants that had prompted them to intervene. Mm. And what we were chanting, we were chanting things like, police are the perpetrators, who do you protect? So I wondered if, you know, looking at those two incidents really concretely, I feel like it really lays bare the challenge that militant feminism uh, poses to the state, as opposed to the non-existent challenge, indeed the recuperation that civilizational feminism constitutes. And I wondered if you would just say more about that schism between those feminisms and why the state is so scared of radical women. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, Because as I say in the decolonial feminism, state feminism or femonationalism, as Sarah Harris has called it, or femo-imperialism or civilizational feminism, and they are not quite exactly the same thing. But the, the point is, the respectability, a respectable feminism, bourgeois feminism, is as really the support of the state now. So a princess can be a feminist, anyone can be an icon of feminism, Marie Antoinette is becoming a feminist icon in France. So everyone is a feminist, the possibility of everyone is a feminist. So it's very important effectively to constantly clarify which feminism we are fighting for. If the princess wants to be, or the duchess or whomever, want to be a feminist and she wants to call herself, but this is not the feminism we are fighting for. But that division is extremely important. And I, we see it also in France. I don't know if this is happening in the UK, but we see it in France. That also is playing within the art world and the cultural world for with a politic of diversity. Who are the good black? Who are the good non-white? That call, you know, gets welcome in the institution and how they are advice not to mingle with this bad one, you know, like those who are Islam or leftist or, you know, whatever adjective is, you know, insert is put. And that, I mean, the political respectability we know have always been there, but the way in which they are replayed today in feminism 
and also through the political diversity and inclusion that we see here and there, uh, you know, uh, the UK today has one of the most diverse government <laughs> and a prime minister who is like the first non-white prime minister. And which means also the way in which we have to distance ourselves from a certain form of representation. And to really constantly say, okay, we fought for representation, we fought for the fact, why don't we have, you know, like the history is like that and totally white and is whitened and everything is whitened, music, I mean, everything. Okay. But we have to be careful with the limits and the trap of representation because neoliberalism has understood a little, you know, neoliberal state. I've understood some of it. Okay, we still have the far right and the acquisitiveness. But a part of the neoliberal others say, okay, why, why not diversity? Was not a little diversity? Was the cost for us? Not much. On the contrary, we will use, you know, non-white people to beat mm-hmm. on the non-white. You know, and we back to the colonial soldier or you know that that organization. So I do think uh, the way in which, uh, as you say, who are the women who have the right to demonstrate, to march, to protest, and who do not have the right. But the fact that those who are respectable or who want to be respectable accept that division, accept the fact that effectively the preceding day uh, women are being beaten or the same day being, being beaten by the police and it's being justified by the police by saying these women were not really obeying the law, even though the other are not either. But that division, the way in which they are also reinforcing whiteness mm. within feminism. Respectability is whiteness in that process. So be respectable and join, you know, the respectables. And you could become prime minister or minister of interior even, you know, and prove, prove that you couldn't become white, you can become white by saying, I disagree with this way of doing. I think that we can reach, you know, uh, more equality by talking with each other. So these people also contribute to the erasure of the violence, as if it's possible really to be at the same table of people who the only goal is to beat you and to, to really push you aside. So by accepting to go at the table, at the dinner table, they support that uh, process of, of demonizing the opposition. And the state has total interest in that demonization. And when women themselves or non-white are doing that work, it's even better, of course, because, you know, they just look. There are women who behave in total respectable way and with whom we can discuss and we would agree with some even feminist measure because we can be feminist and also with diversity because we can listen to the non-white people, some of them. But effectively that is radical and these people are violent which allow the erasure of the systemic violence of the state. And this is very strong. This is going in Germany. This is happening in the UK. This is happening in France. This is happening in Italy right now with a prime minister who's, you know, fascist, a woman, young. And uh, so, yes, we are now, I think, facing more than ever a feminist. I mean, the white bourgeois feminism, sorry, is really showing what it is, much more than before, because today it's being supported by states it's supported by white forces and by far-right forces even, and it's supported by international organization. So yes, there is a, an offensive 
in which uh, these feminists are being drafted and they agree with it. They are even, you know, volunteering mm-hmm. to do that job. The same thing is happening also with uh, some non-white. Absolutely. I mean, that's how we end up, yes, with the first racialized prime minister, also the richest sitting politician, I believe, in the country. Uh, and we've also seen this discourse, I mean, only this week when it's come to environmental protesters, um, you know, just stop oil, throwing the soup on the painting. And one of the mixed race ministers in the cabinet has come out and said, well, we know what would have happened if it were young black men who'd done something like that. He's speaking about his own cabinet. Um, He's speaking about his own government, the police violence that's perpetrated by his own government. And he's only spoken about it to denigrate those radical environmental protesters. When a young black man was shot point blank by the police only weeks ago, this man had nothing to say. So yeah, it's it's completely insidious. And I think you, you put it really well in the decolonial feminism when you write that we must be attentive to policies of cultural appropriation and be wary of powerful institutions' attraction to diversity, we should not underestimate the speed with which capital is able to absorb ideas and turn them into empty slogans. And later on in the book, you talk about NGOs' capacity to depoliticize struggle and contribute to new oppressions. And you touched on the art world a few minutes ago, and, and I wonder whether there's more that you could say about the implications of contemporary efforts to decolonize institutions like NGOs and universities. And what happens when those institutions pick up these terms and say, we are decolonizing, we are feminist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is why also, again, we constantly have to clarify the content of, you know, the word we use. I mean, decolonial now is everywhere, right? In the museum, in the art world, in the institution, you, you know, everywhere. And soon we're going to have princess and duchess going to be decolonial. So we have to really, I'm going to say, remain calm. And uh, because it, it can be very frustrating and very annoying. Okay, there are, there are many things. Um, for instance, we have also to get rid of the expectation we can have because we see a woman in power or a non-white person that nonetheless we still think she or he should behave differently because she or he is non-white or a woman. And no, we have again, as you say, bring back politics. What are the politics of this person? What do they want? You know, what do they aspire for? This is okay. You can be a woman and you are totally a fascist, which means that you will be ready to call the cops and the milice and to kill people who, who protest. So uh, the question of uh, decolonization. Uh, decolonization is, uh, is not a performance. Decolonization will not be a performance if we want to use the, you know, the cultural world today. It will not be a performance. It will not be enough to perform it. It's really a struggle. It's really the demands, dismantling racism, uh, capitalism and imperialism, and therefore patriarchy, and really transforming but deeply the world is not about, you know, if we talk about art, of course, having on the wall more women and more non-white people on the wall of the museum will be justice, but will mm. not be decolonization. 
decolonization will be to rethink the institution from bottom to top, with working, with cleaning, with gorging, how, what is the hierarchy, how the collection was acquired, why do you have so much private money and able to do whatever they want in the art world and billionaire can, you know, can buy uh, 60,000 things and three kids, you know, glue their hand on a wall under a Van Gogh painting or, you know, deemed criminal. No, I mean, this is really, it's not about, it's not a performance and it's not just about representation in the sense of more representation. That's justice. That's not decolonization. Decolonization for me is really deeply thinking what we're going to do today, confronted with so many crisis, if we want to use that word, from so many places. And that leap of imagination that we have to do today to imagine what would be the post-colonial, if we were to use that word, the very deep meaning of post-colonial, what it would be. And certainly it will not be what is being offered. Institution to be decolonized, the university to be really decolonized, will be the end of the institution itself, yeah. as it is yeah. now. Which means that for us, abolitionist feminists, decolonized feminists, we have also to imagine what will be our institution. What kind of uh, teaching we want, what kind of education we want. We really also have to put in word what will be our world. Not just to say we want another world, but our world will be like this and that. And we try, of course, it's not, not going to be a full program, but we have to do that work. Because otherwise we will be confronted with a, you know, any kind of institution will be decolonized. And in the meantime, people will still die. People will be dispossessed. People will not be able to pay their bill. Privatization of school will mean that mostly non-white kids will not be able to go through their education. These are the real problem, and, and what's happening uh, in the global south with the climate disaster. And in Europe, the anti-refugees policies everywhere show us that the decolonial cannot certainly not be an anti-word because an institution can have something decolonial and in the meantime, in the street, you know, refugees are being rounded up and put in absolutely despicable condition and in total stress and fear of what's going to happen to them. So decolonization is serious. It's not going to be a performance. No, and I think imagination, you've touched on it a couple of times, but imagination is so vital in that. I think it's very easy to become animated by what we don't want. It's very easy to be, yeah, animated by despair, decrying the latest new terrible thing which of course you know it has to be said that these things are unacceptable leaving people to drown in the mud is unacceptable putting wristbands on refugees in camps in Britain is unacceptable we have to say those things but it's easy then to become trapped purely in a stance of opposition and that doesn't necessarily motivate us completely to to build the world that we want to live in and I suppose I think a lot about how we have ended up here not that there isn't imagination because there is but you know Stuart Hall writes about the demonization of the loony left in the Thatcherite era in Britain and we see that demonization echoed now in what is called in the UK the war on woke you touched earlier on this discourse on Islamo-leftists in France, and there are various iterations of this discourse globally. And I think 
it has many functions, but culturally a significant function of that narrative is to construe demands for social justice as completely beyond the pale, to try and discipline us out of imagining that we might live in a world that's not constituted by the violence of oppression, to discipline us into thinking that, you know, we can't have a humanism made to the measure of the world, which is what Césaire called it. And I feel that, you know, the way that you speak about a politics of protection and a right to rest is a really beautiful counter. And I, and I wanted to read a passage from a feminist theory of violence that I just loved. And you said that the right to a peaceful life does not mean a life without joy and fervor, but the capacity to exercise one's imagination, to allow oneself to daydream, to partake in aimless activities or activities that require time and patience. It is this right to rest, to a peaceful life, that needs to be developed to counter violence. We need to dare to dream of a peaceful life. And so I wondered if, as we, you know, as we wrap this conversation up, if you don't mind sharing, what do your own daydreams and aimless activities look like? And of course, this peaceful life is not just something that's far off in the future and not here yet. There are seeds of that peaceful life that are being sown now. And I, I wonder where you see them. Well, I see this peaceful um, site, you know, and space being done every day, everywhere in the world. I call them creation of refuge and sanctuaries. Of course, I have in mind, you know, the Underground Railroad, but also other examples of places as people were fleeing uh, brutality and, and cruelty of slavery found place where they could rest, but they could fall also in security along the way. For me, this refuge and sanctuary can be bookstores, can be women's clinic, a collective, black women collective or non-white women collective. I mean, a place in which really not only we can rest, but also we can speak together and say, what can we do and how can we do it? How to do what we imagine, you know, how to organize. It's extremely. Uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, you know, the abolitionist uh, geographer, called it rehearsal of life, because life is freedom, she said. So through this action, we are rehearsing for this life, what is life really, in a world that in fact, propose only stress, exhaustion, suffocation, death, premature death, as, as she said also, that we saw also during, you know, who are the people who die prematurely are black people, non-white people everywhere. Uh, you know, no access to public health, no access to good housing, to good jobs. So for me, that is very, extremely important today to create absolute route in which there are refuge and sanctuaries. And if there is a distinction I will make, refuge mood would be perhaps in the emergency of finding a place because, you know, I have a find a place to hide or to rest. And sanctuary would be perhaps a little longer, like Maroon community established, you know, like more established places where imagination is constantly being, you know, the curiosity. Uh, imagination even as, when I say games, not in the negative sense, but in the way children are allowed to imagine and how schools and everything kill their imagination, tell them to stop dreaming, to stop asking questions, 
And I want us to ask questions constantly and to dream again. My whole moment of daydream, for instance, I like to cook. I cook a lot and I, I like to cook for a lot of people. So I volunteer to cook because it's this moment of having all these different things on the table. You know, I have bought like vegetables and other things. And then putting them together and they end up in 10 different dishes on a plate. And that moment, these long hours in which I'm thinking about whatever, this for me is a moment of peacefulness. Because cooking is a really gesture of peace. You offer food. I mean, this is what I can do. I don't know how to do. I would love to weave, for instance. You know, weaving for me will be also a beautiful moment of like It takes times and you create beautiful things. I like to swim but really because it's the moment in which uh, you're just in water. Uh, I grew up, you know, in an island, so for me, the water is part of, of my life. And sometimes, quite often, even in a city like Paris, it's like raising my head and looking at the sky, like just looking at the sky and looking at the clouds, nothing more, just that just raising my head and getting out of, you know, like not being colonized constantly by the surrounding that white supremacy built to refuse also to, to escape from that environment that is very hostile and very stressful and so evasion, you know, form of fugitivity. And what are yours, Gracie? I suppose I thought a lot about it for this episode in particular, because for me, Marseille is my kind of, mm. I go every summer, mm. I used to live there, and I go to the Plage des Catalans, and oh. there's always, you know, all of these little kids and their big extended families, and it's really noisy, and it's quite grimy, and the water's really crowded, but when you swim out past the barrier... There's that underwater museum, two me- 200 meters out, and you swim all the way out there and you can hold on to the buoy and look back at the beach and mm. look back at the ocean. And when I'm in Marseille every summer, that's what I try and do every day. So that, that for me, when I think about where is my utopia right now, it's, yeah. it's when I go to Marseille, even though I know Marseille is not a utopia for lots of reasons. My other really aimless activity is... Um, since I left my very stressful job, I've taken up etching, which, you know, is this very communal process because nobody has the equipment to etch in their own house unless they're very rich because you need the acid and the fire. You need a big drum of flammable resin. Uh, You need this huge guillotine for cutting metal that you have to leap up and down on. So you have to do it with other people. Um, And I'm really not very good at it, but I love doing it. I love my tutor and his enthusiasm for it and the way he's drawn us all into the studio after just a few weeks of classes. And I love how social the studio is and everybody is always finding ways to you know, to find ways for you to do it without having to spend lots of money, you know, here's some old ink, here's an offcut of metal, here you can just use this acid. Um, so yeah, I think those are those are my two big aimless activities and daydreams at the That's minute. Great. Yeah. <laughs> great. 
Well, we could swim together because I'm, you know, swimming is really for me uh, something that I think it's very good for your soul. Yeah. Yeah, not to bear your own weight. Um, yeah, well, the next time I'm in France, you will find a good. little message for good. me saying, let's go swimming. Okay, good. Sure. <laughs> lovely. Okay. Um, well, that was such a lovely conversation, Francoise. I feel yes. really honoured to have been able to have it with you. I'm so glad that you're part of the series. And yeah, just really grateful for your work and, and your time. Oh, thank you. And thank you for, for your question. We're stimulating. Thank you all for listening to episode two of the Locating Legacy series on the politics of decolonization. Join us next time when we welcome Olafemi Otaiwo, author of Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics, to explore the processes by which radical ideas can be co-opted. Thanks, and see you next time. Uh-huh.